Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. The intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic, the demand for racial reckoning in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, and the terrifying last months of the Trump presidency has created a unique set of challenges for American society, as well as for the American university. Perhaps it also represents an opportunity. Can there be serious structural change in the coming years that addresses deep structural inequality in the United States? What role can the university play? What role has the university played in the past? These questions have added urgency this month, Black History Month, as we remember the struggles and manifold contributions of African-Americans in and to the United States. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, Professor Eddie Cole, who has joined the faculty of UCLA as an associate professor in the School of Education after seven years at the College of William and Mary. Eddie is a wonderful scholar who uses the history of higher education and university administration as a prism through which to reflect on social change, race relations, and the fate of African-Americans in American society. Professor Cole's work has won high praise in his field. This year, he was named by Education Week as one of the top university-based scholars in the United States who did the most last year to shape educational practice and policy. I've gotten to know Eddie as an extraordinary scholar, thinker, and mentor through our shared work at the Luskin Center, where he is a senior fellow. So with all that, welcome to you, Eddie. Hey, thank you for having me, David. What a pleasure to be with you, be in conversation with you. Oh, just great. So can you, let's begin by talking about you and your path to UCLA. Can you sort of give us a brief uh, life summary of how you got to our August institution? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it all started in Bology, Alabama. That's actually home for me. It's a small town in West Central Alabama, Greene County, and um, growing up there in a predominantly black county in the Black Belt region, which is just historically notable um, being in the rural South. I'm actually from a family of educators, David, and uh, so my grandparents actually were school teachers in rural West Alabama. Uh, you can imagine them starting their careers in the one-room schoolhouses in the 1930s and 1940s. And then my parents actually came came of age in rural West Alabama in the 1960s and also were school teachers in rural West Alabama. And so um, I'm from a family of educators that has always thought highly of education and its power um, and understanding the role in relationship between education and Black liberation and, you know, creating a more racially just society. But notably uh, for me, uh, by the time I came through the public school system in Greene County, Alabama, I always like to share this example that my public high school, I went to the public high school, was around the corner from a predominantly white um, 
private academy. So my high school being predominantly just about all black. And then my um, nearby, you know, in the distance that you could hear the other high schoolers, uh, predominantly white. And I'd always had questions about how uh, the decisions of past educational leaders still very much shape the educational experiences that we see today. And so just understanding that childhood experience really led me toward a sort of academic journey to ask those questions as I went from, you know, my hometown in Alabama to Tennessee State University in Nashville, Tennessee, a historically black university. I went to undergraduate there. And from there, I went on to Indiana University, where I did all of my graduate work, um, my master's and PhD at Indiana University. And along the way, I would just continue to ask questions about sort of the role of history in understanding education. And notably, I always thought, well, if my small town school system, uh, former principals and superintendent had that sort of impact on my education, Imagine the impact that college presidents and university chancellors have had on education. And that just has really driven my faculty career since leaving Indiana, spending seven years at the College of William & Mary, the nation's second oldest college in Williamsburg, Virginia, and most recently moving across country uh, to Los Angeles to uh, join a faculty with you at UCLA. And so that really sort of gets my into my uh, life trajectory and academic oh, trajectory. Yeah. Well, we're so delighted to have you at UCLA. And I want to just return to this point about um, how you, in a certain sense, um, added a layer of reflection upon your own family background uh, in education. So you yourself are an educator, uh, but at the same time, uh, you study the history of education and particularly higher education. And I guess I'm interested in light of what you said, you sort of gave us some hints about when did you intuit that understanding the history of education and educational institutions and educational inequities was of real interest to you? And then when did it become your life path? Yeah, you know, I'd say my senior year um, in undergraduate at Tennessee State University. And so you can imagine through all of my um, sort of K through 12 education and then through the vast majority of my undergraduate education at a historically black university, I'd attended schools largely shaped by race, racial context, right? So I'm finishing undergraduate. And during my senior year, Tennessee State University closed, uh, or whether or not Tennessee State, Tennessee State University was involved in a federal court case that was closed during my um, final year there. And that case was obviously a desegregation case going back to the 1960s. And so the consent decrees were finally um, by the court standards remedy and a large sum of money was uh, given to the university. And so all of a sudden, like as a student in that moment, watching the university president feel media questions and it, it being such a big deal, because ultimately the state of Tennessee, like many Southern states, uh, operated a dual system of higher education. There was one with funding for public state supported institutions, and there was one that was funded by for the white um, public state supported institutions. And so being on that campus at that time, I always say if I were, you know, a year older and off campus by then, I don't know if I'm thinking as deeply about these questions as I did. And so during my senior year, in the process of looking at graduate schools, I, you know, looked around and said, you know, I want to study higher education, but specifically the history of higher education. Because again, just like an undergraduate, I mean, just like in high school, I found myself an undergraduate at an institution largely shaped by the past uh, while I was there. And so since then, that really, really 
uh, set the wheels in motion, if I may, right. around studying this topic. So, uh, before we move on to this topic, uh, the history of higher education, I, I'm just curious to hear about your experience at Tennessee State. Was it empowering? Was it um, a reminder of uh, of these uh, towering walls of inequality? What was the experience like for you? You know, here's something that I've learned in studying uh, the history of higher education at Tennessee State, no different than many other historically black colleges, it grooms its students in a way that is very keenly aware of the world at large. Uh, at no moment did I feel as if I wasn't understanding race and its function within society and how our university functioned within society. So in a lot of ways, I mean, it really advanced my critical thinking and better understanding of social context and what it meant to be, say, a black student in higher education um, and what did it mean historically for generations of black students to come through um, black colleges and universities throughout generations. And so it became an extremely liberating intellectual space to be in, to see everyone from um, everyone from faculty to staff to the university president to professors and the students. Uh, look like you and understand uh, the context for where you come from, be it from major cities, because I had classmates from Detroit, Chicago, you know, Atlanta, and you also had people um, also from small towns all across uh, the United States also descend upon Tennessee State. So it just became a phenomenal intellectual space to be in. And I always say I wouldn't think about the topics that I think about today without having mm -hmm. spent time there. And what was the transition like to Indiana University? <laughs> uh, it was abrupt. Uh, so you can imagine being someone who's entering graduate school uh, already with a college degree for my first time entering a predominantly white academic space. I'd never, I'd never been in one before, uh, before being to graduate school in Bloomington, Indiana, of all places. And so not only was it sort of the uh, shock of the sort of demographic makeup of a university campus. It was also shock in terms of climate. It's also, um, I mean, like actual physical climate, like weather, uh, being in the Midwest. <laughs> uh, but it was a shock as well um, it, in terms of size and scope of the university. I'd never been somewhere so large at a university with 45, 50,000 students with major athletics. Those were things that I'd only seen on television. Um, and so, but I will say, besides the social aspect of it, it actually was not nearly as shocking as I imagined from an academic standpoint. Um, I felt very well prepared. Uh, I was intellectually curious, um, thinking of my younger self. And I, you know, looking back at even some of my old notes, because what do historians do? Just archive so much stuff. Even looking at my old notes sometimes, um, I'm kind of intrigued by the questions I was asking on, you know, readings and assignments and the feedback I was getting. And so from that standpoint, Indiana was um, a great intellectual space to come into because uh, I can't think of a better place to study higher education and to study history combined uh, in the, in the programs um, on that campus. So what were some of the questions that you were noting in the margins of your reading? Yeah. What, what, what were those early questions? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, no. They, they have stayed with you and then developed into a book that we're going to talk about. Yeah, some of the notes that I noticed in the margins, um, as I reflect on, were really about voices unheard. People who were not accounted 
for in sort of the, the larger narrative around the history of education. And that was really intriguing to me. So it was easy for me to read about sort of the major players in U.S. higher education history. I mean, that that history leans heavily on the colonial colleges, which are majority of the Ivy League institutions, um, as well as the, the big major research universities. As you move west, think about a University of Michigan or a University of Chicago and coming out to the West Coast, right? University of California, Stanford. But you have to remember that before I got to Indiana, I had a very specific educational experience in predominantly Black uh, academic spaces. And so reading some histories, I realized some of those voices just weren't representative um, to my actual experience. And what I know sort of informally through uh, speaking to older generations who had gone to Tennessee State and older generations who were come back to my rural hometown and taught in a local school system who had also gone off to historically Black colleges. And so part of it was trying to understand that there's so much more to understanding the history of higher education than sort of the dominant narrative that was out there. And so I was really fascinated in looking at my younger self and me asking those questions. And those questions ultimately led to the work that I do now. Yeah. And ultimately led to uh, the book that you published last year with Princeton University Press entitled The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom, which I should say Ibram Kendi has called stunning and ambitious filled with breathtaking narratives and meticulous research. So I'm curious, you know, in light of, you mentioned a narrative of the university, there really in a certain sense are at least two competing narratives uh, of the university in the following sense. There's the image of the university as a bastion of liberalism, uh, progressive political activism, even radicalism. And there is the image or narrative of the university as a bastion of conservatism, um, as slow to change. And I'm curious, you know, as a student of the history of higher education, how do you see the university? Is it an agent of change in society or a mirror of society's own dynamics? And for that matter, inequities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, two things can be true at once. Um, and that's, that's the... Amen. <laughs> that's the... That's that's my short answer if we were passing each other on the elevator. Um, yeah, it, in a way that... Universities have been tremendous spaces of triumph that have really advanced society toward living up to its ideals and its touted beliefs in democracy. Um, that's largely because of colleges and universities. Yet at the same time, many colleges and universities at large have been uh, sort of the, 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 the steel gates in maintaining uh, social hierarchies and maintaining systems at play to where everyone cannot have access to being able to thrive and emerge within the American democracy, if you will. And higher education is as uh, contradictory in many ways as the rest of society. And so that's why I think um, it's so um, insightful to study the history of higher education, because if you truly want to understand the complexities of society, then you certainly have to study the complexities of universities because of what they represent to society at large. Yeah, and that's what you try to do in the book um, and do very successfully, I should say. Um, you depict the university not as an isolated ivory tower, but really as implicated in many of the key issues in uh, the political, social, and racial history of the United States between the time period 1948-1968. So taking up issues such as desegregation 
access to education and employment, free speech, income inequality. Um, in that regard, the university is very much in the midst of these central uh, tensions, issues, controversies, uh, transformations. How does it come out? How does it, you know, as a general matter, what's the, you know, what are what is the narrative uh, that that emerges from that study or set of narratives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, ultimately, uh, the book argues um, that universities, um, and specifically university leaders, have been actively, although oftentimes quietly, involved in shaping policies and practices throughout U.S. society, not just on college campuses. And when we think about these sort of major themes in U.S. society, past and present, uh, issue of housing discrimination, um, issues around the questions of affirmative action, free speech, as you just mentioned, and several other issues are deeply intertwined with higher education institutions. And many times when we think of elected officials with the book, demonstrated to me that I didn't expect to find was elected officials oftentimes not having the answers to address society's problems, oftentimes look toward universities because that's apparently where the smart people are, right? Uh, look toward universities to guide them and advise them on ways to shape particular social policies and practices. And so we see university leaders uh, oftentimes involved in these very high level uh, conversations at the federal level um, that really shape understanding how society moves forward. And so oftentimes we're really at the mercy of what group of university officials end up coming together. So sometimes there are fairly remarkable examples in the book, right, around free speech and understanding how one can protect free speech for all voices, yet at the same time still advance a cause toward racial equity. That's a pretty uh, admirable story that unfolds in the book. But at the same time, you see university officials really put the interests of the university first and in turn displace thousands of black citizens in major cities across the United States as universities expand their physical footprint. And in turn, you have to think about for a university to win and grow, uh, someone has to lose. And oftentimes that was at the mercy of a number of communities of color across the United States. And so you just get this really conflicting story, uh, very complex, much more than I anticipated going into the archives. When you look at the history of U.S. higher education and its relationship to society at large. Yeah. Well, I mean, the complexity really comes through uh, in the book because each chapter examines a different university president, African-American and white. Um, so you have that built-in structural complexity. What do these profiles reveal mm. about the individuals and for that matter, the office that they hold? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, two things. One, the office itself is extremely influential and extremely powerful. In post-World War II, that office only grew in terms of influence and power. Um, so that's one thing to understand is that after World War II, as uh, so many more people decide to attend colleges and universities across the United States. In turn, so much more influence and attention went toward universities. And so college presidents really adopted just a, a phenomenal amount of power to shape, uh, again, policies and practices. So that's one thing about the office itself. But the book also reveals something about these individuals that's intriguing to me. 
that I hadn't thought too much about, but there's this conflict between the sort of professional responsibility or what does it mean to be a president or what does it mean to be a chancellor, as well as sort of the personal moral questions that the individuals in those positions have. And what I found the most effective academic leaders when it came to really moving a university forward toward racial equity were those people to where their professional and personal beliefs were able to align with each other and not be in complete conflict. But those other presidents that oftentimes sort of put their personal beliefs aside and move forward exclusively within the office in the official capacity oftentimes didn't maximize their ability as far as moving the needle forward around ending racism in the United States, particularly on their college campuses and in their local communities. So can you give us an example of um, a figure who, for whom there was an alignment between the professional and the personal? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know we can talk about Franklin Murphy at UCLA um, as, as a one particular example. Franklin Murphy was hired as chancellor at UCLA in 1960, just as the California Master Plan for Higher Education was being implemented in the state of California. So Merkley arrives at UCLA as chancellor, very much committed to creating a university where all students can thrive and wanting to move any forms of discrimination away from UCLA, as well as in Westwood, a neighboring community uh, right near UCLA. Uh, But uh, one particular thing came up to where in the UC system, Uh, Chancellor Murphy, for the first time, reported to a president of the University of California system, who was Clark Kerr at the time, instead of reporting directly to the Board of Regents, uh, what he was was previously doing at the University of Kansas before coming to UCLA. And so one particular conflict came over whether Franklin Murphy could support students, UCLA students, who were arrested in Mississippi during the Freedom Rides in 1961. And so one particular tension came up between the UC system formally says students could not be involved with social issues under the name of the University of California. Do what you want as a private citizen, but not as a University of California student. But Franklin Murphy didn't necessarily believe in that. Personally, he was committed to supporting students in the Black Freedom Movement. And so you see a moment to where he actually makes a personal donation, like uh, to aiding students, uh, make bail money, Um, for their uh, criminal charges based upon them in Mississippi, where they were challenging segregation in public highways facilities. So you see that tension between the personal and professional, but he makes sure that they align in his actions as chancellor. What surprised you in your study of these different figures and these profiles you you, uh, drew so richly? Yeah, one surprise, David, would be the original plans for affirmative action in U.S. higher education. Uh, That was such, I mean, just a mind-blowing archival find and seeing the correspondence um, between presidents. Because right now today, when we think about affirmative action on college campuses, we're really talking about race considerations in admissions and or in hiring on a really select number of highly selective predominantly white institutions. I mean, when we're talking about affirmative action, we're not talking about the entire U.S. higher education system. We're talking about the institutions considered elite, where it's really tough to get into. Uh, But, you know, that was me really adopting a pretty narrow conception of what affirmative action could be. And that's based on today's standards. But originally, these college presidents worked together, both 
uh, the presidents of white, wealthier institutions, worked alongside the presidents of a number of historically black colleges and universities to come up with a more comprehensive affirmative action plan that was really geared towards system-wide change in U.S. higher education. When and where was that? This was in uh, picking up in 1963 through 1965, um, that sort of two-year period. So this is right. This is really in July of 63 when President Kennedy writes a letter to a number of college presidents. And, and, and after the violence in Birmingham, Alabama, in May 63 with the water hoses and police dolls uh, used on children, and peaceful civil rights. I mean, just the the national, the global image of the United States with the violence toward Black people just became so much that President Kennedy turned toward university leaders to come up with a series of special programs. That was the quote: special programs that could help address society's racial issues. And college presidents got to work, and they started coming up with these programs that were geared toward enhancing historically Black colleges smaller regional institutions, as well as, uh, you know, highly selective uh, universities enrolling, actively recruiting and and enrolling Black students. It wasn't only that. There was a series of programs. But unfortunately, again, the biggest surprise in the book was seeing how the presidents of, say, University of Wisconsin or Michigan and several others quickly retreated from investing in other universities and turn their attention almost exclusively to recruiting black students to their campuses only. Um, and we see that's sort of how affirmative action really unfolds today. And that is really a sort of inward facing uh, program for some campuses, as opposed to thinking about what could have been, which could have been a wider variety of institutions having more access to resources. Yeah, I assume we see that over and over again. Um, the university incubates uh, a fine idea um, and then it's 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 um, disseminated, um, and over the course of that process of dissemination, diluted and and maybe even turned against itself. Um, it seems like affirmative action is one very prominent example, but not the only one. Um, I'm wondering, in light of that, how you sort of capture, as an historian of higher education, the arc of the university in what some have called a neoliberal era. And by that, I really mean uh, sort of the increasing corporatization of the university, sort of the, the, the view that the university should be run as a business um, uh, and uh, it's and therefore is answerable to, um, you know, to custodians of financial efficiency. Um, in the case of public institutions, there seems to be a parallel process, a closely related parallel process of privatization, right, whereby uh, as state funding has declined significantly, Private philanthropy has risen in significance as a source of uh, uh, of sustenance for the university. Do you see these uh, trend lines of corporatization and privatization, and how does it alter your view of the university, uh, especially from the period you chronicled, forty eight mm. to sixty eight? Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a that's a great question. I love that question. Uh, one particular thing that becomes clear when you think about that sort of arc of the university is that this becomes the moment where it begins. And um, I'll give you two examples uh, from the book. One, I'll stick to affirmative action. Much of the original plans from President Kennedy um, did not garner support from Congress immediately. And so those universities, as they were developing these programs, turned toward private interests. 
Um, and so you see a lot of involvement that I write about in the book from the Carnegie Corporation or the Ford Foundation or Rockefeller Foundation, pouring millions of dollars into these universities and these programs, which ultimately turn a lot of university officials towards seeking publicity and attention for their programs in hopes of getting private support. Um, that's pretty notable. Um, but also when you think about the physical expansion of universities in, through the 1960s, also a lot of that was supported through private business interests. Uh, you think about sort of the, who were on some of these boards of trustees, uh, major real estate tycoons, and what does it mean to be involved in sort of buying up property that ultimately displaces sort of the working class communities, but it does serve the business interests of millionaires uh, during this time frame. And so it's really interesting when you look at the trajectory of the universities post 1960s, going into the 70s and 80s as state budgets continue to dwindle, and you can't even get into thinking about it today, uh, universities are largely uh, reliant upon uh, private business interests that completely shapes the way the university functions today. And frankly, I don't know if you can turn it around at this point. Well, that brings us um, to our now part of the discussion. We spent some time talking about then and, and really interesting historical questions. And it, it really leads directly to the question, can universities be agents of positive change, um, especially in light of what we've just discussed? Um, are they forces of reaction? Um, and I'm particularly curious to hear your sense of where UCLA stands in this. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's another great question. Uh, short answer, yes, universities can be um, agents of positive change. Absolutely, they can be. Uh, it is a matter of, uh, in some cases, are universities willing to take the risk to be part of a force of positive change? And again, that comes back to the the, the transition point between the then and now where universities rely so much on when it comes to support. And so one particular example would be UCLA. UCLA is well positioned to create positive change. But one question on the table is UCLA and university, you know, in the university police. Um, so the university police department right now. And so we see a national, uh, really a global, not just national, global call to rethink policing, or, you know, and what does that mean for having so many, I mean, millions of dollars invested into police departments. And why do universities in particular have such robust police departments? And uh, as you think about 2020, as there were protests in Los Angeles and other places around the world um, in reaction to the disproportionate amount of police violence, particularly toward unarmed Black people and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and several others, uh, LAPD was allowed to use Jackie Robinson Stadium which is UCLA's baseball stadium, named after Jackie Robinson of all people who uh, broke the color line in Major League Baseball as a holding station for arrested protesters. So you see the uh, clear uh, contradictions between uh, our chancellor and several others issuing public statements that say Black Lives Matter, but you can understand also activists saying this doesn't quite line up using university facilities and increasing the university police budget. And so there's one, one particular instance to where UCLA is in a position right now to where um, it's a big decision to make and university officials, I don't envy them in having to make this decision, but they're in a position to where, yes, they can create positive change again, but are they going to be able to make the changes and be willing to live with perhaps upsetting some longstanding supporters um, in making the change? 
Yeah, and I want to maybe go there and speak a little bit more specifically about that. But um, there is this tension, it seems, that you have helped us to understand between the university as the incubator of ideas that um, really agitate toward positive change, like affirmative action, which you mentioned, and then the reality of, say, of life for African-American students, faculty, and staff at universities like UCLA, which uh, remains a, a matter of considerable challenge, both in actually entering the gates of the university and then in thriving and flourishing and having equal opportunity to uh, white students, uh, staff, and faculty. So there is this tension in hearing in the institution of the university, and I suppose it inheres in all institutions, which can be forces of progressive change and are often are forces of reaction. So in light of that, what should UCLA do, do you think, at this moment, this moment of reckoning uh, over racial injustice? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. That's one that uh, a lot of universities ask me when I'm giving uh, talks on, on virtually with their campuses. And two things come to mind. One thing is uh, UCLA has to actively think about the community as an equal partner in the educational enterprise. It's absolutely essential that that happens right now, David. Uh, there's is no more, you know, there's no more space for UCLA to make sort of these these high level decisions about UCLA and decide to bring the community along with it. It has to start thinking about how is UCLA a part of LA um, in the truest sense, not just symbolically, not just on paper, but actually stepping away from Westwood, stepping out of the administrative suites and actually going to sit down in South LA or going to East LA and being able to engage with the community and understanding what the community wants and desires from the major public research university in the city. And a city as dynamic as Los Angeles with so many people and voices and uh, cultures represented it, that's going to be absolutely essential for UCLA to do right now and to do it consistently, not one time for the sake of doing it, but this has to be ongoing, consistent, uh, reoccurring meetings. And the same thing about, um, you know, when it comes to reoccurring meetings, I would also encourage any university administrator from Chancellor Block down to anyone else on campus to really have a standing meeting with the university archivists, um, just like they have a standing meeting with the vice chancellor for finance or vice chancellor for personnel, because truly there's something to understand about the history of your university and not just the institutional history at the macro level, but David, it's absolutely critical for university officials right now to understand the social history of their respective institutions. So understanding that people make UCLA work hour in and hour out, day in and day out. People make UCLA work. So if you know that, then you have to understand the people's history of UCLA. And once you understand that aspect of it, you have a much more robust understanding of UCLA as an institution and what it can create because you know what it means to individual communities throughout Los Angeles, Southern California, the state of California, the United States, and the world when you understand that social history. And that's what UCLA has to prioritize doing right now in this moment. Well, as you know well, we're trying to do our share at the Luskin Center. Um, we're delighted to have recruited you to a research team working on the history of race and racism at UCLA, um, where we believe that understanding how we got where we are by reviewing the past will help us chart a better future. Um, at the same time, um, you know, overcoming inequality and inequity is a, is a matter of allocation of resources. Um, it's a financial question in, in many ways, not exclusively so. 
do you have any thoughts on how um, the allocation of resources should look in a more just university? Wow. Yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> uh, that means you have to do the the real you have to do an equity minded audit of where, where your resources are being allocated right now, um, as opposed to um, sort of making the assumption that all of your budgetary items and your resources are already earmarked. And where can you sort of find additional funds? Yes, that's important. But there are also it's also time to ask some critical questions about how we function in general. And this is another thing that the book demonstrates to us that's especially important for us at UCLA, but the entire UC system is that there's something to be said about organizational charts and hierarchy and how universities are structured, because those structures are very much just as much an equity issue as they are an organizational management issue. And this time for us also to sort of do a critical audit about how things are structured and how decisions are made on campus is absolutely essential to do that, because that, again, shows us where things get hung up and where our priorities are and how resources are equally or unequally distributed to different areas. So I think that's so important right now, David, that we have to sort of step back at that level and ask some critical questions around our budget. Um, I mean, that that for sure is going to be the first step toward figuring out where do we put, you know, where do we put the money? Uh, or as the saying says, you got to, you know, <laughs> put your money where your mouth is. Uh, that's that's going to be key. That's absolutely essential right now. Thank you. Um, so you've spoken very compellingly of the importance of history for the university and for society at large as a way of uh, coming to terms with our, our past. Um, and I think it's particularly important to make this uh, observation in the midst of Black History Month. Um, I'm wondering what your sense is of the importance and the effectiveness of Black History Month um, in performing that work, um, in, in allowing for uh, us to take stock of uh, the great achievements of African-Americans to the history of the United States, but also for uh, white America in particular to uh, confront its own uh, past of injustice. Yeah, yeah. Black History Month is so important. Um, I mean, what a historic um, designation uh, to have, just knowing the history of Black History Month, uh, going back to the 1920s, when it originated, um, is Negro Achievement Week. Uh, but understanding, um, you know, Black History Month for all of us, uh, but particularly since you mentioned even for white Americans, um, for everyone, it's a moment of reflection, right? It's not just a moment of sort of um, exclusively trying to celebrate particular achievements, but it's also a moment of the complete reflection on what does it mean to be Black in America. And I think that's so um, essential that it's not just about achievements, but understanding the totality of the experience that has happened um, since the, the first Black people uh, arrived in what is now the United States. I think that is what's so critical to February is that it's a good point of to pause, reflect, and then to actively chart what your next 11 months look like in trying to really live up to Black history and create a future, Black futures that are just as rich as Black history, right? And then you sort of get a chance to come back around to Black History Month the next year and pause, recharge, and reflect and move forward and do this work again and make progress, right? Um, so it's just as essential to 
sort of have your programs and you know, I do my fair number of Black History Month uh, lectures as well. I mean, I think those that's very important. Uh, continue doing that. But also, it's a moment for us all to sort of stop, pause, and think about where we've been to better assess where we are and then to better plan where we're going next. Hmm. So in that regard, I'd love to ask you, as the son of educators, who are the children of educators from Western Alabama, and as a wonderful historian of higher education in America, and for that matter of race relations in the United States, whether you believe that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Yes, I do. I think that, I, I, think, I think absolutely. Um, I will say that the bend isn't clear. I would say that the bend isn't um, consistent progression. I would say, as I always like to say, it's sort of up and down, or as I talk about the pendulum of justice, swinging this way and getting resistance and sometimes swinging back that way. But hopefully when you swing back toward justice, it gets a little bit higher. Um, that's the way I think of the arc, not sort of this consistent trend bending toward justice, but I think it's ongoing work. And I think when we understand that the arc in the fight toward justice is possible, um, we will be remiss if we didn't think it was possible because we can look at our ancestors and see that the challenges that have come before us were deeply troubling. Yet somehow so many million people still have persevered toward a better society. And that's what we have to be committed to right now, David. We have to be committed to doing work right now that if we don't see the fruits of justice, the next wave of scholars, thinkers, citizens at large will get a little bit deeper taste of justice. And that's really what I think about when we talk about whether we can truly bend toward justice or whether that arc is truly bending toward justice. I think it is, but it's not bending on its own. We have to continue to push it. We need to push it. So building on that, um, my penultimate question for you, Eddie, is what does history teach us? Mm. It teaches us about ourselves. Oftentimes we like to think of history in a way that teaches us about the past and people before us and things that other people did, other people did during, a, you know, during another time and space and place. But in reality, history teaches us all about ourselves. It helps us better understand why we do what we do every day. And that should really make us excited. I mean, that that's sort of why I can, I'm fortunate enough to wake up and have some enthusiasm thinking about what I need to do each day, because I know that the study of history has a richness that better shines a light on the path that I'm attempting to walk every day, be it in the classroom, be it trying to think and write as a scholar, whether I'm on another committee across teaching, research, and service, history sheds light on what I'm trying to accomplish. And so it isn't some distant thing about names and dates of people long before. Really, it's about ideas and ideology that has shaped our present in such a rich way that we're not really living up to our full potential and really getting into the fullness of life if we don't know history. So my final question, Eddie, given how much time and thought 
you have devoted to the history of higher education, the history of uh, university administrators and college presidents in particular. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, have you ever considered becoming a college president? Uh, common question, and I give my common response. Uh, no, I do not want any parts of being a university administrator, uh, particularly at the that level of the executive level of campus. I've got no interest. And I always say that um, uh, if I did have interest, writing the book certainly turned me off from it. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of... Though you show us the ways in which university administrators can in their own ways, uh, lead to positive and constructive change. It also seems to me that the first uh, criterion for a successful university administrator is to deny any interest in university administration. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I will, I'll, I've never had that put, put back to me that way, but it's funny you say that. I may have been talking to a certain Ivy League president and uh one of one of his responses was i never wanted to do this job yeah. okay well we'll we'll, we'll check back <laughs> so, with you in five years and see if your if, if your view has changed but i want to uh thank you professor eddie cole for joining us on then and now it's really been a most illuminating time with you thank you so much david what a pleasure what a pleasure we have to do this again indeed and thank you to our listeners out there let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of then and now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. That's L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>